So, you found an intern yet? Next. Uh, my name's Max Dillon. Okay, Mr. Dillon. Uh, see, you don't have a resume. Uh, tell me a little bit about yourself. Well, I, uh, I'm a hard worker. I think I have a lot to offer the show, and I've really been working on the whole talking thing, so I really hope that you could, like, you know, see it in your heart to give me a shot, because I used to be a lineman for the county, and that just didn't work out for me all that well. Mm-hmm. Well, you understand you won't be talking on the show. I'm going to need you to run errands, prepare synopsis, things like that. I, I was told there would be talking. Uh, no, no talking, but you know what? I mean, you seem like a pretty earnest guy. I think, you know, we can give you a shot. Put it there. Yeah, what the hell? You know, get the f out of my office. Come to me, my dogs. Back to the bin. Have I ever come up with the the uh, of singing uh, Roxanne to the tune of Roxanne? Uh, possibly. Mm, yeah, I wasn't sure. I was just doing that tonight because I was thinking of the uh, a, uh, Agent Carter show from last week with uh, with uh, Roxanne in us. Roxanne. I'm. Uh, I was thinking karate. Thinking of, I'm thinking of doing a parody of Do You Want to Build a Snowman? To Do You Want to Do a Podcast? <laughs> See what I can. Uh, See what I can get going with that. Because, uh, I was singing on the last time Scott and I got together, I was singing a lot. Uh, I think I even finally I, broke Scott because he seems to sing now, too. You uh, broke me a while ago. I mean, I don't sing much and I don't sing well, but every once in a while you have me. Well, neither do I. Mike, Mike tried to break me when he was on the show regularly with me, but he could never do it. Now you've done it. I hope you're happy. <laughs> well, Bill, Bill's nice, so. Oh, and, and did, have you listened to, uh, uh, what, what you call it, the uh, Growing Up Star Wars this month? No, I I, I have not caught up on those either. Because I listened to it, and, and listen apparently, to Dr. Bill, you are a uh, paradigm in podcasting now. What? Because Chris and Scott started to get on uh, Scott Rifen about something. They were just busting his chops. And they said, yeah, we're going to start treating you like Dr. Bill. <laughs> so I guess, I guess they were making <laughs> reference to how I treat you. Great. <laughs> I'm, I'm not one of these people i mean i have been in the past but you know in, in my you know my 30s at least i've really tried to not be the type of person that if a thousand people tell me i should go see something that uh i i, I actively avoid it because i'm just tired of you know i just don't think that i just but with guardians of the galaxy it's almost like at this point this movie cannot live up to the expectations that everybody else is laid down about it <laughs> yeah that's that's a risk you run I, I the movie i can say that happened for me most definitively on was uh 
Forrest Gump, people raved and raved about that movie. And I saw it and I thought, eh. <laughs> and, and then it won the Academy Award and I thought, eh. <laughs> I mean, I'll, I'll probably end up enjoying the film because I really can't think of a Marvel film from the past, you know, 10 years that I haven't enjoyed to win it. You know, I even enjoyed Daredevil. So, you know, back in 2003. I mean, the only reason Ang Lee's Hulk pissed me off is because, well, one, I hated the... I hated the comic uh, panel thing he did. I thought mm-hmm. that was, you're not making a comic book. You're making a film. Stop trying to be artistic, you ass. Uh, but um, I just I just didn't really think it was much of a Hulk story. <laughs> yeah, I agree. You know, I didn't either. Hulk ended up fighting air at the end of the movie. You know? I would say the, the Hulk was probably my least favorite of any comic book movie in the last 10 years. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll go with that. I mean, because it really... Because even there are things about Spider-Man Three I will defend. So at least, on, and there are things about it that I like. There are things that I'm just like, wow, God, you could tell the director and the studio hated each other on this movie. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, th- I think it could have definitely been tightened up, and it could have been. Uh, I, I I personally thought that uh, what's his name? I don't even remember the actor's name. The guy who played Venom. Uh, I thought he was miscast. I didn't, you know. I know they were trying to go for the opposite number of Tobey Maguire, so they wanted somebody of a similar build and all. But that's not the way he was in the comics, and I just didn't see him as threatening. Yeah, they but they 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 cast somebody who should have been Peter Parker. Topher Grace would have been a fantastic Peter Parker. Yeah, but I just didn't find him to be as threatening and as intimidating as I wanted Venom to be. You know, and they were going more for the Peter Parker feel, and I, I. I don't. I didn't like it. I didn't care for that. But I thought the movie overall was enjoyable. It was entertaining. I didn't think it was a great movie, but I thought it was entertaining. And I would say the same thing about uh, X3. I, I was entertained by it. I don't know why there's such a high level of vitriol over it. I, I think, you know, yeah, it's got its faults, but it wasn't the worst movie ever. Yeah, it's, it's not the best of the X films. And uh, again, th- there are aspects of it, mostly Hugh Jackman, uh, that I really like about the film. I... Uh, you know, I think they should have waited for Singer. But then again, you know, I thought one of the best things about uh, First Class was that it was that type of X-Men film, but not directed by Singer. So I think I enjoyed it more because of that. I think I think First Class was better than anything Singer ever did. I, I, I don't think Singer's a great director, personally. And I, I, and I think even less of him as a person, because I really am bothered by the fact that he... He left them high and dry to do Superman Returns, uh-huh. and, then, and then he was very, very critical of X Three. You know what? You know, just keep your opinion to yourself. Don't you don't have to come out there and criticize other directors who are picking up the shit that you left on the floor. <laughs> that's that's directed my by Brett Ratner. I'm not, and I'm not a Ratner fan, but that doesn't mean that you know Singer should be out there criticizing him. I don't know why people give him such a hard time for that uh, Jackie Chan Chris Tucker film. He's not making freaking Shakespeare. He's making a movie with Jackie Chan and Chris Tucker. <laughs> There's only so far you can get with that, with I mean, that casting. <laughs> I mean, I like Jackie Chan till the cows come home, but it's just, you know, th- that film was, you know, 48 hours, you know, East meets West type, you know, type thing. So you're not, you're not looking for, you're not looking for like dramatic crime story because you're not going to get it because Chris Tucker's in it. So it's just like... <laughs> God, and I actually didn't mind Red Dragon. I I rather liked uh, seeing Ed Norton in that role. 
Yeah, I, I actually thought I liked Red Dragon more than I liked Manhunter, which is a more highly acclaimed movie. I, I, I really couldn't compare the two because they're such different movies. You know? Except yeah. they're the same story, though. <laughs> it, th- yeah. They are. The, well, you can compare it on that level, but Michael Mann did a Michael Mann movie and yes. just used that as his plot. You know, Red Dragon was a continuation of... Hannibal Lecter story. You know, the Hannibal Lecter, you know, Han- you know, Silence of the Lambs. So even though he wasn't a huge part of it, uh, I, I think... Uh, I, I I think with between Norton as the cop and then Ray Fiennes as the as the killer, it was just like ah. Mm. <laughs> I don't know. I still like Tom Noonan's Tooth Fairy. You owe me all. <laughs> and then he went on to make Frankenstein and uh, Monster Squad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so. All right. Well, you're doing uh, Comics Monthly Monday in an hour and a half. Yeah, let's get this done. So let's. Do uh, anybody want to bring us in? Not it. All right. You want to do it, Mike, or you want me to do it? I don't give a shit. Sure, I'll I'll, I'll bring it in. <laughs> hey, everybody, and welcome to another exciting installment of Back to the Bins. I am Michael Bailey, and once again, I am joined by Scott Gardner. Wait a second, it's not 2010. <laughs> wow, that was like five years ago. Um, yeah, I'm not really on that show, on this show, all that much anymore. I. I don't even know why they let me bring this in. I feel kind of alone and feel like I need a hug. But luckily, memories. Da, 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 da. <laughs> I'm happy that you're on, Mike. I'm glad to talk to you. I will not be hugging you. <laughs> and of course, we have Paul Spataro and Dr. Bill Robinson. Nah. My maniacal sidekick. <laughs> hey, who's a sidekick? You're a sidekick. Andy. We're all uh, sidekicks. No, that was a that was a Chuck Norris film with that kid from It. Uh, was that Jonathan Brandis? Jonathan Brandis, yes. Yeah, also from Sequest. DSV, yes. Yep. <laughs> because because Star, because Deep Space Nine was popular, so <laughs> so we got to jump in on that. What was it? Deep Sea Voyage. I it was like deep sea vehicle. See, I never watched the show because it was always on opposite of Lois and Clark. Mm. So, and this was before like the advent of the DVRs. You so. upset it, you make it better. Okay, uh, I will. I will make it better. My wife just brought me a dog. You upset <laughs> it, you make it So, anyways, uh, no, it was always on opposite uh, Lois and Clark. So I never actually watched the show, which is surprising because Stacy Hadiak was on it. Mm-hmm. And I had quite the crush on her when I was a teenager, thanks to the Superboy television series. Yep. Uh, so, yeah. And <laughs> talking Dolphin on that show? Darwin. Yep, Darwin was a talking dolphin. It's, and they uh, had two of Dom DeLuise's sons on there. What was uh, that, which uh, one? Was the... Peter and... Uh, uh, the shorter one. I can't remember his name. Because I know there was the one that played Penthall on 21 Jump Street. Yeah, he played the. Uh, they shaved his head and they made him a guy, uh, a, a character called a, a Gelf, a genetic, genetically engineered life form. And then the other guy was just like a rough and tumble, no nonsense streets guy who I think was either it was either go on the sequest or go to jail, you know, type thing. Which was now, the Eloise son that was on Witches of Waverly Place? That was the. Oh, 
He's the third one. Yeah, he was not on that show. Oh, he was not. No, he wasn't on Sequest. So I guess there's three of them, right? Yeah, because the younger, the the one not from Wizards of Waverly Place, uh, there was an episode of 21 Jump Street where they were talking about like their bullies and penthalls was this really actually traumatic story. But his younger brother played his younger self. And then, and Dom DeLuise was in that episode as well. And then, like, when Johnny Depp left that show and it went syndicated instead of being on Fox, his younger brother came in as the, as Penthall's younger brother, who was now part of the unit. So, Hmm. you now know more about 21 Jump Street and the DeLuise boys than I think you ever really ever wanted to know. So, I remember there was, I think there was an episode of, uh, Deep Quest that had, or Sequest that had Dom DeLuise on it and played the one kid's father. And he was like in a, he was like in a special place for people that smoked to like, you know, like a, like a, like a terrarium for smokers or something. And they had to go visit him. He's on like the other side of the wall. Unless I'm getting my shows confused. But yeah, was, was this the one where he thought he was God too, where he kept talking about him? him. No, wait, that was Cannibal Run. I'm sorry. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Dun, dun, dun. I'm telling you right now, we are leaving money on the table for not getting the entire Two True Freaks crew together and doing our own version of Cannonball Run, <laughs> where we're all racing to San Diego. Oh my God! <laughs> We'd probably be able to get make from New York un- Comic Con to un- San Diego un- Comic Con. <laughs> so, well, that's just my thought. I, I just uh, and 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 I would never be in anyone's particular car. I would just be jumping around. <laughs> Hitching a ride. You'd be, Bill Bixby style. You would just be on the side of the road with the music. <laughs> I'm, I'm, see, I'm just thinking every once in a while we'd cut to, to Mike and he'd be like in his apartment packing a bag. And then you'd show the rest of us traveling across country. Then you'd cut back to Mike packing another bag. And then like as we arrive in San Diego, you see Mike walking out the front door of his house. <laughs> no, because the great thing about it is that right, right before we get to San Diego, there's got to be like a big fight scene. And you're going to take Where... those bleeds and... Are you going to take these bleeds? <laughs> it's, that, that those outtakes at the end at the time were, like, incredibly funny. They're still funny. I watched that movie for the first time as an adult a couple years ago, and I laughed my ass off. Because uh, the stuff I didn't get as a kid was, uh, was <laughs> yeah. really funny. <laughs> Who's going to play the part of Jack Elam? <laughs> You know what, I'm not going to even try and cast somebody for the role because it's going to be insulting anybody who I say should do it. Chris Honeywell is Jamie Farr. (laughs) Maybe that's who I should be. I'll grow a beard and be an an offensive Arab. (laughs) So, (laughs) anybody got any comics news? Uh, Nope, I don't have any new comic news since last time. Well, just, uh, it's, it's been a it's been a quiet month. I mean, it really for me in comics. So I've been I've been actually everything I've been reading for the past two weeks has been for a show or or one show or another. So mm. it's, been, it's it's been work. And if you have good comic news, you got to save it for Comics Monthly Monday anyway. You can't only you can't spread yourself too thin here. Yeah, well, you know, I <laughs> I can really spread myself as thin as anybody wants me to be. There's a lot of me to spread. <laughs> so I was going to say, I was just wondering how much square footage would I cover if you spread me out? Well, you're 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 smaller than me, Bill. I mean, we met, so I I, I know this now. So 
And thank you for introducing me to that restaurant. I haven't been up there since you were there, but that place was great. Oh yeah, that was the that was the Cajun Chinese place. Yes. Man, that food was awesome. Oh, that chicken was awesome. Everything is awesome. Everything is cool. I love the carb chicken. I love the carb special. <laughs> Can I have some more rice? Yeah, didn't you like have rice and bread and like so and potatoes? Yeah. Oh, it was could get that if you really wanted it <laughs> well the the plate they bring is just massive and then there's like oh, oh man i remember that night after, after when he got online we were talking about like that you know like expecting bill to go into a diabetic coma and then <laughs> and then the joke would be like because he was at the hotel room and the joke was going to be you know well we don't know where his hotel room is call mike bailey he knows because he just met up with him and then it cuts to you and you're like passed out in, you know in your room <laughs> With the phone ringing next to me. Ring, ring. And the dog just sleep, coming in, looking at the phone, and then crawling on my chest and falling asleep. Yeah, you're totally unconscious. The dog's just kind of licking you on the face. <laughs> that happens more than you would think. And you're like, I love you too, honey. <laughs> I do find there's very little that's funnier than discussing you know, all our ailments and diabetic comas and things of that nature. I don't know why I find it so amusing. I just do. That's okay. Ever since we started the Handicapped Avengers. <laughs> that just wasn't right. Peanut allergy lad. Uh, I think my favorite was the Iron Lung. <laughs> Not All as right. offensive as the uh, mentally handicapped action star me and my friends came up with once. So. <laughs> Tell us more, Mike. <laughs> I don't know if I should, do People... I mean, okay, so I worked third shift for a really long time, and things get punchy at 2 o'clock in the morning, and I'm listening to this show, this commercial for the Special Olympics, and <laughs> there's no way that this can go better, so I'll just keep going. Um, and it was this guy talking about his sister, and they called her Wake, because when she gets in the pool, that's all you see is her Wake, and my immediate thing was to look at my friend and go, no, they call her Wake, because she really can't swim all that good and drowns all the other children. <laughs> So, so this this led into us creating Billy Myers, the world's first mentally handicapped action star, uh, and we we had like this thing where the president has been president's daughter has been kidnapped, the entire army has been uh, killed, and so they call in the android that's made to look like a handicapped mentally handicapped guy. But the joke was, if such a thing could be. God, this is so offensive. Uh, the joke was is that Hollywood actually bought a mentally handicapped kid and just kept putting him to movies. <laughs> we, uh, we, we we had some. It's not the darkest thing I've ever come up with, but it's 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 one of them. So this is what I'm happens really when you have too much time and you're tired. It really is. You should have. You should have. God, if I would have kept a notebook when I delivered papers in the middle of the night. <laughs> <sighs> Weird stuff happens. In the middle of the night, like when you're driving down a street and there's an owl in the street. Wow. And it won't move. And you honk your horn and it does nothing. And it just stares at your, and you turn off your lights thinking, okay, maybe the lights are messing with it. You turn the lights off, nothing. You turn the car off, nothing. I see you getting out having a conversation <laughs> you, with it. You get out Will and you take move it? and huh? the owl goes, who? You? <laughs> who? You? <laughs> I, I generally find that we have, uh, we have an understanding when, when, Small critters do that. I just keep rolling forward, and they find a way to get out of the way. <laughs> and and to this point, I don't think I've ever run one of them over. 
So well, what small what small critters do you really run into in in, in Brooklyn on a regular basis? Well, I'm, I'm I, in Long Island. Besides yeah. hipsters, I mean. I am in Long Island, but oh, uh, I thought you were. Sorry, I I apologize. I thought you were in Brooklyn. I apologize. I grew up in Brooklyn for the first oh, 32 years of my life, but uh, I've been been here for a while now, being old and all. Um, Long Island. Long Island, yeah. So over here, you know, you'll you'll see, you know, certainly squirrels are commonplace. Raccoons aren't that uncommon. Very rare, but occasionally you see an opossum. Those are nasty looking little. Oh yeah, uh, and they talk like William Shatner too. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, I would say that's pretty much it. Although not, I've, I've never seen one here, but occasionally, not too far from me, I've seen rabbits. <laughs> so those are the critters that that I deal with. What's up, Doc? <laughs> and that's when you shoot it in the face. <laughs> Never saw a duck. That, yeah, that's the duck. Shoot me now. Shoot me now. <laughs> There's a little pond that I drive by when I'm coming home from work. And apparently, you know, you see geese there sometimes. And apparently somebody was driving through very quickly one day because the next day I saw like a bunch of handwritten signs about driving carefully and not a... Uh, you know, that there's wildlife presence. So I'm thinking somebody ran over a whole gaggle of geese. I, I, I'm i in the suburbs. And so you wouldn't expect that at a, in the suburbs, not really near any, close to any bodies of water that you would come to work one day. And in one of the little grassy, uh, like sidewalk areas, you would see a bunch of ducks. But um, yeah, I was there and it was really strange. I didn't... <laughs> I kind of, I kind of thought that maybe this is like one of the moment in the film where the world starts to unravel because <laughs> uh, things are where they're not supposed to be. But the uh, revolution no, they... has begun. Yeah, <laughs> the duck revolution. <laughs> every once in a while, if you if you go about an hour east of me, forty minutes even, you every once in a while you can see some deer, which I'm thinking you don't see any of them in Georgia. <laughs> oh God, no! Not, no, nah. a good friend of ours actually was in a rather was in a rather horrific accident with a deer. She's fine, but. They, they they're they're plentiful around where we are. So they, oh, they uh, are. Uh, oh uh, God, yeah. I mean, one of the most one of the most disturbing things that ever happened to me here was in our backyard. Uh, we've got a pretty large backyard, and there was a fence separating our yard and the woods. And apparently, it's the most upsetting thing I've seen in quite some time. A deer tried to jump the fence and got caught and died. Because uh, it just couldn't get loose, and the saddest part was you saw where it had tried to dig itself out, uh, and we had to get rid of it because this isn't our property. We can't really, you know. So we were basically just trying to chuck it over the uh, fence and kind of let nature take its course. Uh, that was really upsetting <laughs> on on a number of levels. One, I felt bad for the deer. Two, that thing stank. So yeah, <laughs> it's one I felt bad for the deer. Two, I felt bad for me. But no, I mean, I, 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 uh, I've gone out to the front yard sometimes and there's like three or four just hanging out, having a smoke. Yeah. Up in the you, Poconos, wait a minute, which you is the, deers. the Poconos, you know, a couple hours from here, but, uh, mm-hmm. we used to go there fairly frequently and, uh, deer are just rampant up there and I never saw any, but people say you see bears up there as well. That would probably scam. Yeah, us. but that's only certain clubs. So, oh, you're talking about like, like wild bears. Okay. Yep. Like, you gotta oh, watch out talking. for those cougars too. <laughs> Bears and cougars really don't get along all that well. <laughs> They're like two different species. <laughs> anyway, Maybe we should talk about a comic at some point. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> enough with the flora, fl- fl- flora and fauna. Let's jump discussion. into some comic book talk while we have time to do it. Who's got our Marvel? 
I've got our Marvel, and I've yeah. got a, I've got what what I think is a. It, it turned out to be a really fun one uh, that I haven't read in years. I, I chose Incredible Hulk number two fifty one. Marvel's TV uh, sensation. Marvel's TV sen. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, this is this is a. Uh, this is right in the era where probably the most successful the series was, because uh, this uh, the cover date on this thing was September 1980. It actually came out June 17th, 1980. So that's right around you know third going into the fourth season. This is a question nobody asked, but Bill Mantlo answered anyways. Whatever happened to the 3D man? And as I said, it was written by Bill Mantlo. It was drawn, and one of the reasons why I chose this is it's Bill Mantlo writing, and it's Sal Buscema drawing. And a lot of people have like their definitive Hulk artists. Uh, there are people that swear by Herb Trimpey. Uh, there are people younger than me that will swear by like Dale Keown or Gary Frank or even John Romita Jr. I think made enough of an impression on that character to uh, to kind of be like one of the one of the artists of the Hulk. For me, it's Sal Buscema. Uh, mainly because when I was a kid and would pick up like the random Hulk comic, uh, he would invariably being the one that was drawing it. So uh, Diana Albers did the letters. Bob Sharon did the colors. Al Milgram was the editor. And of course it's Jim Shooter, editor in chief caught in the heart of a nuclear explosion, victim of gamma radiation gone wild. Dr. Robert Bruce Banner now finds himself transformed in times of stress into seven feet, 1,000 pounds of unfettered fury, the most powerful creature to ever walk the earth. Stan Lee presents The Incredible Hulk. Dr. Bruce Banner, melted by gamma rays, turned into the Hulk. And we open on Bruce Banner getting a bit of a start when he hears kids crying to look out for the Hulk. Turns out they're just playing a game, which leads to some introspection on Bruce's part about his life on the run. A dog barking brings one of the kids to where Bruce was rooting through the garbage for clothes. Uh, and you know this isn't inspired by the TV show because he would obviously be taking it off of a, a line and putting it like a fiber, uh, you know, to pay for the cheap clothing he just stole. And soon Bruce is introduced to the boy's father, Hal Chandler. Hal doesn't think that Bruce looks like a hobo, quoting here, and being a nice guy, he invites Bruce for dinner and introduces him to the rest of the family. After dinner, Bruce regales the family with stores, stories of the early days of Los Alamos, where they are now, and Hal talks about his brother Chuck. Chuck was the typical all-American kid that grew up to be a test pilot, and on one mission he was flying the X, XF-13 and while over the desert spotted a UFO, uh, followed the UFO, found Abensor, uh, was given the... No, wait, that's not what happened at all. Uh, actually, uh, he uh, radioed for... Uh, Chuck radioed for help and disappeared, never to be heard from again. Which you know means you're going to hear from him in like three pages. Chuck's girlfriend and Hal consoled each other and turned and that turned into love. And well, here they are with a bunch of kids. Uh, I'd make a sloppy seconds joke, but that's just that's just wrong. Everyone turns in for the night, and at this point we learn that Hal knew who Bruce was, but didn't want to take the chance of getting him angry. Uh, so he calls the cops. Meanwhile, Rick Jones and friends are busy dealing with a shot. I'm sorry, Mike, sent- I'm going to interrupt you. He didn't want to take a chance on making him angry, so he did something to make him angry. <laughs> yeah, so it's just like, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to feed him, because if he's, if he's full of food, obviously he won't, uh, he won't turn into the hall. 
I, I just, I, it, it boggles my mind a little bit. But go ahead. I'm sorry to interrupt. Yeah, it, it, it's 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 comics logic, you know. To be fair, so so. Uh, <laughs> meanwhile, Rick Jones and friends are busy dealing with a shot centaur that wandered into their cabin. And if you think that's weird, t- try jumping into this story after not having read it for like almost two decades. Uh, things go from bad to worse when a man known as Wood God shows up, followed by Doc Samson, who is pissed at the centaur lying on the floor for causing General Ross to have another nervous breakdown. Shit is about to get real between the circus Wood, wood God... Bro- I can't say that out loud and it not sound silly. Uh, <laughs> it's about to get real between the circus Wood God brought with him and Samson, so Rick uh, uses the ham radio in the corner to call for help via the teen brigade. And you know if that would happen today, he would be like, you know, using Twitter, you know, to, to get the teen brigade going. At and, Rick and again, Jones, I'm going to interrupt you because even in 1980, people were not using ham radios. <laughs> <laughs> well, Go apparently ahead. somebody was because Hal Chandler's kid, Chuck, uh, is using it, hears Rick's cry for help, and then runs to his dad for help. He finds his dad comatose in a chair and a strange figure that introduces himself as the 3D Man. Hal soon recognizes the three, 3D Man, oh, Hal's son, excuse me, uh, recognizes the 3D Man as his supposedly dead Uncle Chuck, and thus we get a uniform that defies synopsis. So, uh, so I'm really just going to read this bad boy. It's true. I am your Uncle Chuck. On that day when my XF-13 vanished from the radar screens, I was drawn aboard a UFO. And uh, Al Milgram tells us that UFO stands for Unidentified Flying Object. Inside were a race of insidious scrolls, aliens who were out to conquer Earth. I fought them, and I fled from them, knowing that Earth had to be warned. The scrolls wanted to brainwash me, to send me back as a spy. So they had to leave the XF-13 intact. I rocketed out, out of there like the devil was on my tail. The Skrull ship's exploding! Don't ask me how, but I fought the XF-13 down to a crash landing in the desert, near where your ever-faithful father was awaiting me. Hey, Al, hey, little brother! Chuck, you, you're glowing! I reached out to Hal just as he reached out to me, and at that moment, I ceased to exist. Chuck! Chuck! Your dad's recovered, uh, your dad recovered, reached for his eyeglasses, and there discovered the impossible. Oh, no! Chuck's been reduced to a pair of red and green images imprinted on my glasses. <laughs> my, my, I, <laughs> my li- 50s. Uh, my little brother this, was This always, wasn't 50s. This was not 50s. I, 3D I Man was created in the 1970s. Really? I thought he was a 50s character. No, he was in Marvel Premiere. Okay, thank you. It was, a, it was um, you know, one of these books that takes place in the past, but he was created in the 70s. Uh, for some reason, I thought maybe he was like Marvel Boy or one of those, you know, characters that showed up in Atlas around this time period. Anyways, uh, my little brother was always the brains of the family. He figured out that by focusing on the two images and by willing it with all his might, he could bring me back to life in the real three-dimensional world. And on that day, the 3D man was born. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Uh, the cops arrive and 3D Man works well, with them well, on... well, well one thing though um, 3D Man does tell his nephew whatever that that he does put, put the time frame back in the 50s he says after some brief encounters with the scroll agents in the 1950s your dad ceased to call on me so it is kind of a 50s trope even though it was created in the 70s. Yeah, it was It was like The Invaders it was a, a book that took place you know was written in the 70s yeah. but took place in the past yeah but I, but I doubt the 3D Man's adventures like used as many reprints as Roy Thomas did during the course of the Invaders. Um, 
The cops arrive and 3D Man works with them on the best way to apprehend Bruce Banner. Hal's son, Chuck, by the way, named after his uncle, knows that Bruce is Rick's friend and gets to him before the cops can tell him, uh, can get to him and tells him about Rick's peril. The 3D man and the cops bust in just after Bruce's transformation, and suddenly it is on like Donkey Kong with the 3D man and the Hulk fighting through the house. You know, the very thing that Hal didn't want to have happen. During the melee, Hal's wife learns about the secret behind the 3D man and convinces the authorities to let her to try to break up the fight. For some reason, they do, and she reasons with the J-Giant, who launches into the air to go save his friend Rick. Rick in danger! 3D man joins back with his brother, and instead of being royally pissed that Hal lied to her all these years, Peggy says that everything is great, and now she has the best of both worlds. <laughs> Cue the porn Whoa. music. Or or, or or the Sammy Hagar. So <laughs> it's the best of both worlds. And what she means by that, of course, is that she's going to convince Hal to bring out the 3D man and then have oh, sex yeah. with him. <laughs> so while he's in a comatose state, <laughs> it's almost like he's watching. I want him to watch. <laughs> um, Take the glasses off. No. <laughs> I, uh, in, uh, 95, uh, my, my brother-in-law sold me a bunch of comics when I was a teenager and he sold me basically every Hulk issue he had And this, and it was, it was a pretty solid run during the two hundreds. Uh, so uh, I remember reading this and really enjoying it back in 1995 and then I read it in here and I really enjoyed it, but wow, does this thing fall apart on just about every level. Yeah. You know, one of the things that, that throws me off about it is. I had thought, as the 3D man, he had the strength of a person to the third power. Mm-hmm. But no, no, he has the strength of three men. <laughs> you know, it's, boy, how is the Hulk going to defeat somebody who's as strong as three men? <laughs> yeah, especially since you know the matter the Hulk gets, the stronger Hulk gets, and we are we are firmly in that era of the Hulk here. Uh, no, I mean, it's it's an enjoyable story. Don't get me wrong, I, I I had fun reading it, but just I was expecting like divorce proceedings to to go on you know after all these years that 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 peggy the girlfriend of his brother who thought he was dead married the younger brother who knew he wasn't dead i mean there's it's there's just something kind of wrong with that i mean like seriously wrong with that mm-hmm. yeah you know, I, what I find it's hard to believe is he saved these glasses from the 50s <laughs> glasses were were made better back then, i guess so because so, Wow, that's one tough pair of glasses. <laughs> the prescription never changed. <laughs> he can't see crap, but he still has those glasses. <laughs> hey, Doc, can you fix these? You know, the, the guy takes the lens and polishes them. You see 3D Man, no! <laughs> but, you know, Paul brings up the, the elephant in this issue is that he recognize, Hal recognizes Bruce as Bruce Banner. And instead of being like, well, sir, you know, you can have those... Uh, you can have those clothes, you know, if you need some money, here's some money, and be on your way. I gotta I gotta save my family. So let me invite him into my house. Come on. Because that could only go well. And it'd be better if I put him upstairs. So this way if he if he does hulk out, he's gotta destroy the whole home. <laughs> and then I'm gonna call the cops because they're gonna be able to bring him down calmly, because that always happens. So Bruce uh, so Banner initially... made the cover of life, huh? That actually Life. makes sense. National Menace, the man, the man the and the monster. 
I had I had originally thought that uh, Mantlo created the three D man, but it I looked it up quick and it's Roy Thomas. But it was Marvel premiere number thirty five. Interestingly, yeah, this, is, Woodguard, this is where my my Marvel foo isn't as good as my DC foo. So Woodguard was invented by or created by uh, Mantlo. Never really took off very much, but he was also from an issue of Marvel premiere. <laughs> well, this is just kind of a you know Mantlo's run on the Hulk was I th- you know. This this is me being extremely biased, but I love his run on the Hulk, mm-hmm. especially when we get to the point where Bruce Banner gains control of the Hulk's body and he goes through the whole journey of the Hulk becoming a good guy and then slowly losing it all, you know, leading up to Hulk 300. And then they do the whole, you know, him hopping around different dimensions. And Oh, yeah, that's when they banish him with the uh, the three aspects of his personality. Yeah, and, and, it's, and the Magnolia artwork was good. It's just I don't enjoy those issues at all. <laughs> I really don't when I reread them a couple years ago. So, But uh, I just, for me, the, the main draw of this is the Busema artwork. I love his Hulk. I think he draws the Hulk in a, it, it just gets me in a way that other artists really, I mean, I, I like, Jack Kirby's original concept of the character. I, you know, I'm not a really big fan of Herb Trimpey, but that, then again, I haven't read a whole lot of that era, so maybe I'm uh, being a little hard on it when I when I'm really not all that familiar with it. Uh, but I, no. I started reading during the Trimpey era, so I will always have a soft spot for him. Yeah, and and I found really that people that came into the Hulk during that era will love Herb Trimpey till you know forever, and and I and I appreciate that. Because I think that's kind of how I feel about Sal Buscema. So, you know, that's... I, I didn't read a whole lot of Hulk comics when I was a kid, but every time I would pick up an issue, Sal Buscema would draw it. So in my in my mind, that's how the Hulk looks. So Could even though a, other artists would... Oh, go ahead, sorry. I'm sorry. I was going to say just a couple of artistic comments on it. Uh, on the splash page, uh, who's wearing the giant pair of shorts? <laughs> That's one of their neighbors. They don't like to talk to him all that much. But, I don't, uh, nobody, nobody, you know, nobody that we're seeing in this book looks large enough to be wearing those. Um, my favorite shot in this entire issue is when they show the circus that's traveling with uh, Woodgod. Yeah. And now uh, you you look at it and you got you got a senator guy. Okay, that's good. Then you have a centaur woman. Then you got one woman who's uh, who's basically got the reins. On the center woman, so I guess she like whips her if she goes the wrong way or something. But she's she's got wings, so you understand why she's with the circus. Uh, the person driving the next one, it looks like okay, doesn't have legs. All right, kind of a freak show thing, I guess. I don't know, but if you look, there's somebody, there's somebody in one of the wagons who's behind bars. Yes, <laughs> and he's like this this serpentine guy, and he looks miserable in there. And I just love the look on the guy. The driver of that wagon looks like Magneto and Aunt May had a kid. And this is kind of <laughs> yeah. the, uh, or, the result uh, Agatha of that Holy Alliance. So. Looks kind of like Agatha Harkness from, you know, the mm. Scarlet Witch's teacher. But I've, I've always been a bit. fan of, of Sal Buscema as well. I think, and I've said this so many times, that I think his work is uh, very, very well laid out, very well paced. Uh you know, storytelling is is really impeccable. I think it's so easy to follow his stories, but I think to a great deal his work is dependent on who who inks him. Now, in mm-hmm. this instance, he inked himself, I guess, uh, and it's it's okay. But my favorite Sal Buscema is when he's inked by Klaus Janssen. I think it's awesome. Yeah, and 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 to be fair, he's got several stock Hulk poses, but I love them all, so it really doesn't mm. matter. 
Yeah, the big thing for for Salvisima is the uh, the what you call it, kind of that that little curl in the front of hair uh, that like everybody who combs his hair to the side has the way he draws them. Yeah, and then, and then he's also big as was Trimpy on the Hulk is screaming and has the line of spittle going Spittles, from his teeth. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's great. But, now you know this. You know this takes place in uh, this takes this takes place in the eighties because. Where else in the 80s could you have so realistic of a Hulk costume that you could probably be shot by the police in it? Yeah, really. I was, I, Bruce Banner <laughs> thought it was really the Hulk. Yeah, I uh, I love... That's another trope I love in most superhero comics, especially in the 60s and 70s and 80s. Whenever somebody dressed up like a hero, no matter what, they always looked exactly <laughs> abs and all looked like the hero. And here, apparently, we have like a... Like a Hulk costume, and frankly, you know, I've seen the Hulk costume that Marvel had from this time period. Uh, you know, the, and it looked like ass. So was it was it one of these ones where you had like a shirt that had a picture of the Hulk on it? No, uh, Marvel would send people like Jonathan Frakes was Captain America. Oh, you mean um, you mean for for their you know the their costume. promotional? I think you're talking about yeah. like a Halloween costume. No, yeah. that was like you know where they would have like a shirt that says the Incredible Hulk and like a Hulk mask. Yeah. Just in case you, so there's no, you know, ambiguity about who you're. No, no risk of the shooting you because they thought you really were the Hulk. <laughs> you're right. So, I mean, today people cosplay as the Hulk, you know, commonly, and it looks really awesome. So I guess maybe that makes sense. But yeah, in 1980, where, where do these kids get a Hulk? I mean, is it like a gorilla costume? Can do people like just sell them? It's a shaved gorilla costume, dyed green. Didn't well, 3D Man isn't isn't really a master of tact, is he? He keeps calling him a monster and like just egging him on to to, to cause come on. I'm as strong as three guys. I can take you. <laughs> you know, you know, like one guy can lift 200 pounds. I can lift 600. What could you do, Hulk? <laughs> He's like Michael I... Keaton in Batman. You want to get nuts? Let's yeah. get nuts. Well, I, I think what he can really do is reduce you to pace. Yeah, pretty um... much. <laughs> Because I'm sorry, it's just like the Hulk is, especially this Hulk, you can't stop him. You really can't, because the more pissed he gets, the stronger he gets. And this guy was a bottomless well of anger. So uh, I do like, Mantlo had a really good handle on the Hulk speak, though. Come all of you, come with your costumes and your guns. Hulk is mightier than you all. <laughs> it's a fun story, though. I mean, I'm blasting it because there are some real big holes that they walk through. Not the least of which is that this woman was willing to accept all these. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it's just like did. you know. It, it, okay, so so God forbid something happens to me and my wife like takes up with another guy, right? And then she finds out that I never really died in the first place, and this guy that she's had like five kids with, you know, knew the entire time that I was alive. She'd never speak to either of us ever again. Turns out Mike lives in my eyeglasses. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I just thought. All right, so the so the three... it would be Apparently funny. I'd get a pass. It would be <laughs> funny at the end if if he just t- kind of took the glasses and then like did that you know breathing on him <sighs> and then wiped them clean. <laughs> <laughs> no. The world has seen the last of the three D man. <laughs> well, all this time has is three uh, D man been able to like look through his glasses while he... yeah, like, like oh, that's creepy. creepy. That's even more that? creepy. <laughs> I'm assuming that it's a separate pair of glasses that he's had put away for the last 
25 years. Don't no prize it, Paul. No, no, you will not. You, you will not try to legitimize the three D man. I'm sorry. Well, that would explain why the three D man's so angry. You know, because he's been, you know the things I've seen. Oh what, my god! It would have been good if he, if he if he put on the glasses. Three D man comes out and just goes over and beats the crap out of him. <laughs> you son of a bitch! And then you freaking you freaking dress a draw for the last twenty years. Now, didn't they bring this guy back? Yeah, they brought him back during the Secret Invasion, didn't they? Um, <laughs> well, what they did the, was they brought... ties to Triathlon, too, also yeah, in, in the Avengers. Triathlon gets his power. <laughs> okay, okay, so that, that makes a little more sense. Cause... And then what they did was they brought him back when they did the uh, the 1950s Avengers, in uh, what originally if. in What If. Yeah. Yeah, and then, and then didn't Bendis actually do a storyline where those people were, like, hanging out and existing with Wolverine? Yeah, they did. Uh, I could have sworn there was. No. <laughs> okay, so Triathlon's a crap character to begin with. So how do we make him more crap? Well, we're going to make him the 3D man. Wow. No, no, it was <laughs> the other way around. 3D man was first. Uh, I know, but it, w- w- you said Triathlon got his powers. So, my, uh, during Secret Invasion. Yeah. So... There, well, that was no... prior to Secret Invasion. Um, but, yeah, I don't, I don't remember what he they was did during the 3D uh, man. The, oh wait! The, uh, I think I remember what Perez, uh, 3D Man did with with Secret Invasion. They could, they could. His powers was able to identify scrolls, wasn't it? Yes, that's it. Yeah, and he was with the scroll kill crew, kill scroll, whatever, something like that. But Triathlon came along during the George Perez, uh, what's his name? Yeah, Kurt Busiek. Uh, Kurt Busiek uh, Avengers run. Yeah, but then later they 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 drew in uh, the 3D man aspect to it, or that's where they said that he had gained his powers somehow. I that's been a long time since I read that. Yeah, but ultimately I come back with like I said, we could point out all the faults in this issue, and there they are plenty. But it serves its purpose. I read this book and I enjoy uh-huh. it. And isn't yeah, that I more mean, important? And if you read it as part of Mantlo's overall run, it fits right in. I mean, it's just it's just another stop on the way, you know, to get from Hulk, to get Bruce from point A to point B. So, you know, and while I will never say that Wood God is one of my favorite characters, you know, it's distinctive in in the run, and it kind of fits right in. It's like the UFOs that get introduced a little later. Mm-hmm. You know, they're I, I can't believe those characters kept coming back because really they seem to serve. Like the function of that one story, and you don't really need to see them again. But writers, you know, kept digging them up and actually doing some interesting things with them. So, well, that that's why I love Mantlo's run on the Hulk is that it was kind of crazy most of the time. You know, he had a point, he had a direction he was pointing the character in, and you know, like I said, I mean, the the pinnacle was the 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 rise and the fall of the Hulk. Uh, but uh, yeah, th- this this was just goofy, <laughs> which is okay. You want to rate it? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> well, I'll, let me let me give you just in case you haven't haven't uh, heard our rating system. We we rate the books based on the cover, the story, and the interior artwork, and we give it ratings basically a school grade between A and F. C would be um, an average book. Okay. Uh, overall, I will give this book a B because I give the artwork an A. And I give the cover an A too because I think the cover is really striking. Who who uh, who did the cover? That's a really good question. I'm I'm trying to I'm I'm not trying to look it up. I'm trying to just figure it out by looking at it. I was going to say Frank Miller. Yeah, I was going to yeah. say Michael Golden, but even though I'm pretty confident it's not, it just looks like Michael Golden to me. But I'm going to try and look it up while you keep going, and I'll look it up. 
No, but but the story itself is like a B minus. So uh, I'll give the whole thing a B. All right, that's fair. What do you think, Mike? I mean, uh, Bill. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> that's okay. Uh, yeah, the um, I like the cover um, as well. I'd say probably a, a A to uh, like a A A minus for the cover. The interior art is, of course, classic Busema, Busema, however you would like to say that. Um, I'll, I'll give that a B plus as well. And the story's goofy but fun, and it does what it's supposed to. I'll, I'll give the story a B minus, C plus, so also a B book. Cover artist, Michael Golden. Oh, yeah, you nice. It. Oh, I feel so good. <laughs> okay. Uh, I, I also really like the cover. I think it's moody. I think it sets up a confrontation. I think it, it's much more uh, tense than what's actually inside the book, especially with the uh, the, the military uh, police basically on each side of them, and you know, rendered in dark tones with just gray or light blue, whatever color that is. Uh, I, so I really like the cover. I'm, I'm going to give this the cover an A minus. Uh, the interior art, I like the art. I don't really don't think Busima did himself any favors with his inking. It almost feels a little bit rushed. So I'm going to go with a C plus on the art. I th- I don't think it's the best of Busima. Uh, and story wise, it's a fun story. It moves along, like you said, Mike. It gets you where you want to go. But there are a couple of just big holes in it that are a little bit annoying. Uh, so I'm going to also say C plus on that. And overall, I'm going to give the book a B minus. I hear crickets. No, I just think it's it's, it's kind of it's kind of interesting that we all basically came to the same conclusion, grade wise at least. Yeah. yeah. Well, sometimes sometimes we're just accurate. <laughs> let's let's take it that as as being that. Sometimes when we touch, the honesty is too much. The search is over. You're right. I'm not going to quote any. I am not going to quote any song right now. You know you want to. I'm just just not, let it let it I'm, go. I'm just not clever <laughs> enough. Like you guys. Well, if you ever loved me, show you show me that you give a damn. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. That was All right. Let's go. Let's shift over to the DC now. The DC. Into this. Let's let's shift from one crazy train right to another. So. <laughs> We're going off the rails on the crazy train. <laughs> This is why Bill and I shouldn't be in a room together. <laughs> we could just do a whole conversation in song. <laughs> uh, well, and I have to thank Mr. Spataro because uh, I was like, it's going to take me forever to find a DC. I can never choose what I want, and 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 I can't. And I was like, I'm like, I, I, I said, Paul, throw me a book, buddy. Just pick me a book at random, and he did. And you know what's funny? It's not total random because I actually looked and I picked out a book and you you know we were talking to each other while I picked it out and we purposely said let's take something that's a little bit off the beaten path that's something that we wouldn't normally do and and this way we're going to just have something different to talk about. So naturally when we talk about which one we're going to do we get from Scott, "Oh damn, you guys are doing that book?" <laughs> no, no, it was <laughs> you're doing a Challengers of the Unknown with Dead Man and Swap Thick. You're killing me. It's like it's it's impossible for us to pick a book where Scott's not going to get annoyed at us by picking it, and and you know in fairness I would be annoyed if I was missing episodes too, but it's like, you know we we went out of our way to try and pick something obscure and it still gets him pissed off. 
we can't do all F Troop all the time. We, you know, we're not going to do an all F Troop Apollo Smile show, okay? It's just not going to happen. So anyway, let me get to the book. Time's running out for The Challengers of the Unknown. Ace Morgan, Daredevil Test Pilot. Professor Mark Haley, Master Scientist and Scuba Expert. Red Ryan, famed adventurer and mountain climber. Rocky Davis, world champion triathlete. Brains, brawn, skill, and guts. They are the challengers of the unknown. I have tonight Challengers of the Unknown number 87. And this information I have is brought to you by Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics. The cover date was June and July of 1978 on sale and March 20th of 1978. Cover price 35 cents. Page count 32. Our cover artist was penciler was Alex Savuick. Did I say that right, Paul? Paul? Anyone? Anyone? Bueller? Bueller? I thought I'm it was sorry, Savuick. So. <laughs> say it again. I, 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 I was incommunicado <laughs> for a moment. Could you hit me with that? You were putting You were putting away your 3D glasses? I was going and getting a glass of iced tea while you were talking. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Never mind. I was trying to pronounce the uh, the penciler Alex Saviuk Saviuk Savik. Uh, I'll just say Savik. So are we talking like? And I, I'm going to say. Are we talking Giffen? like good looking Savik or like the one from Three? You're talking oh. about the the penciler of the cover. Yes. Okay, because Keith Giffen is the interior artist. Oh yes, I was doing the penciler of the, of the cover. Yeah, I, I think it's Saviuk. Savvy yuck, savvy yuck. Yeah, okay. Well, then, if it's savvy yuck, it would have to be Robin Curtis from the third one because I, I'd rather. If if I'm going to have any savvy, it's going to be the one from two. Oh, uh, so. you don't want to now. I, she slimmed down, supposedly. Please. <laughs> Anchor Dick Dick blah, 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 Dick Giordano, and on the cover we have uh, Dead Man telling three of the challengers of the unknown to enter the time sphere being held by a really huge swamp thing. As yesterday is the only place they can survive. Below, the challengers appear to be fending off hostiles with laser pistols, firing at the foes seen off co- off cover. Is this the Death Cheaters' last challenge? Read Twelve Million Years to Twilight, and our writer is which, given the novel series, probably still not enough time to get away from Twilight. So, <laughs> <laughs> our writers are. Jerry and Carla Conway, penciler Keith Giffen, inker John Chilardo, Chilardo, letterer Ben Oda, colorist Jen Serpe, Serpe, man, I'm bad at names, editor Jack C. Harris, oh, that one was good, I, I didn't screw that one up, 12 million years of twilight, in the year 12 million AD, give or take a few millennia, dead man is freaked out by an individual named Lucas Lawspeaker, whose mental powers apparently enable him to read dead man's mind even when he is possessing another human human body. In a quick quick recap of the last few issues, we find out that Amazon has been delivering packages of giant mutant creatures from the future to the past on Earth. Man, they'll deliver anything. Three of the challengers of the unknown use the Time Master Rip Hunter's Time Sphere to travel to the future accompanied by Swamp Thing and Dead Man. Once there, they were captured by Rip Hunter, who is also under the control of the Sunset Lords and Lucien Ramona, and their genetic giant, the Persuader. With the recap over, Lucas tells Deadman to beat feet and go help his friends, which he does. We'll see that later. 
We join Ace Morgan, June Robbins, Rocky Davis, and Swamp Thing in the Palace of the Sunset Lords, being led to the Persuader to be reprogrammed. They walk, they talk amongst themselves and are planning to break out of the shackles binding them. Rocky and Ace make their move, shattering the manacles upon some metal columns, and it's on. It, it, it's amazing, Mike, that you and I, I was, I almost wrote out in my synopsis, it's on like Donkey Kong. <laughs> That's what you did in your book. Swamp Thing and June quickly follow their lead, but find that an army of mutants is headed their way to recapture them. And no, it's not the X-Men. Swamp Thing, Alec Holland, decides to slow the mutants to allow the others to escape, ready to sacrifice himself if necessary. Meanwhile, back at Challenger Mountain in the present, Red Ryan returns to the headquarters after recently quitting. It's a good thing, too, as Professor Haley is battling some of the future monsters wearing an experimental motorized and pressurized spacesuit that is about to run out of air. Oh. Red quickly finds a way to increase the heat in the chamber where the fighting is taking place, destroying the creatures and then cooling it so that the professor can open his suit and breathe. Jump forward to the Palace of the Sunset Lords, and the challengers here have found the mutant breeder lab and destroy the tanks in a big implosion. Ace is shaken a bit though as June took a laser hit but was only stunned. Swamp Thing has fought off most of the mutants but now the main event has arrived. The Persuader. Swampy wipes the floor with the foe and almost looks like, looks like he's about to throw him into the sun Scott Gardner style. Instead he smashes him into a nearby turret of the palace knocking him out. One of the Sunset Lords readies to destroy Swamp Thing with a Nova Blast. Gee, that sounds familiar. Well, maybe from another company. But instead, the staff explodes as Lucas Lawspeaker and his Sky Riders arrive. Sky Riders in flight. Lawspeaker delight. Boo! And start to turn the tide. Back in the present again, Ryan and Haley contact the JLA and pass the info to them to help defeat the remaining monsters that Amazon has dropshipped. Professor Haley, though, has cons or Halley or Hal, whatever, though, is concerned about his friends in the far-flung future. But they are doing pretty good, as the timely arrival of Lucas and company is bringing the Sunset Lords to their knees. So much so that they are ready to go all scorched earth on the city and wipe out everything, since they will be safe in their citadel. Before that button can be pushed, though, the no longer mind-controlled Rip Hunter. Well, I should say, no longer Sunset Lord Mind Control Rip Hunter blasts them before they can carry out the deed. The secret was that Dead Man was inside him, see, that's where he went, kids, and was controlling him and thus breaking the hold of the Sunset Lords. With the Sunset Lords defeated, Lucas and Rip bid farewell to the Chrononauts as they travel back to 1978. Sadly, this was the last issue in the run. The end. I have to say, I have never read a complete issue of Challengers of the Unknown, and to read the last issue of one of their runs was a little confusing, but I think the biggest treat of this book for me was the splash, the the, the single-page picture of Challenger Mountain. That is just awesome. I love those those from um, books of this era, where, where they would have the blow-up of the bases, and you see all the different rooms and everything laid out there just freaking neat it just it's kind of george perez is ish as is ish ish whatever see i think of it as jack early jack kirby is ish <laughs> kirby ishes it's kirby licious because <laughs> they would do stuff like this in like the annuals mm. but it's just pretty stinking detailed though that's that's you know 
And well, this, uh, is, this is an era where you needed to do stuff like this, though, because you didn't like have Wikipedia or oh, know, that's books, true. Yeah. books, you know, detailing like the most microscopic detail of the Fortress of Solitude or the Batcave. So all you had were these schematics. And, uh, you know, I, I absolutely love them. I don't, I don't care if it's just like, here's Jarvis's, uh, you know, janitorial closet. You know, it's just like, <laughs> oh, look at that. That's where he puts the mop. I mean, it's just, it's silly. But at the same time, it's like really awesome that they would take the time to do this. Because it just, it just makes the world seem not more real, but just more detailed. Well, I see where some of the... Uh, um... I've heard comparisons drawn to the Challengers of the Unknown, drawn a uh, comparison to the Fantastic Four, and although there's five of them, apparently, was that always the case? Was there always five? No, or... June wasn't part of it at the beginning. It was the four men oh, putting okay. all together, and they were on their their own. Uh, sorry. Till the one day when the lady met this <laughs> fellow. <laughs> they knew it was much See, you more got me than to a sing. hunch. Ba-da, 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 ba-da. That's the way they became the Challengers of the Unknown. The Challengers of the Unknown. And then we should just, you know, then you see N.B. Davis in the middle. <laughs> <laughs> She's the persuader. <laughs> no, I think June came along later. It was really, I think it was just the four guys that were on the plane together. Uh, and, you know, they, they didn't die. So they assumed that they were living on borrowed time. So they became adventurers. Mm. Basically, it was the template for like the Centurions, really, from the eighties. So now, well, and there are those who say this was the uh, the template for the Fantastic Four. What are the dates on that though? Because it's kind of like you know people say that the Doom Patrol ripped off the X Men, or that the X Men ripped off the Doom Patrol, and they came out with like a month of each other. So yeah, we just we just did uh, the first Doom Patrol appearance in the episode that posted last week, mm-hmm. uh, and yeah, they they. They were about a month apart. Um, but the challenges first appeared in the 1950s. Mm-hmm. So they, yeah, they, they, right. they did predate yeah. the Fantastic Four. And Kirby only did like the first four or five issues, if I'm remembering correctly, before it was uh, turned over to other hands. So, but yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, it's <laughs> on the surface, they were similar concepts, but I, I think you could say that with Stan Lee's you know, idea that he's just going to do something very different with these characters. The FF became very different from the challenge of the unknown very quickly. So, yeah, unless I'm completely wrong and they were just, you know, the FF was just a complete rip off of uh, the challengers <laughs> of the unknown. Well, there's a, um, we also get a guest shot of the JLA in here. We've got Batman, Green Lantern, elongated man, demon. And I believe that's light Ray. I think. It looks like Light Ray. I was. I, I really wanted to kind of. I think I do the math it. on this and figure out, you know, if this was during uh, during one of the crossovers, but it wouldn't be the crossover with the New Gods because that didn't happen until like the eighties. So this, uh, I, I think, more of showing Light Ray was the fact that Jerry Conway was writing the Return of the New Gods series. Mm. What was, was going on around this time? Well, what was the demon in the JLA? No, I don't think he ever was. Oh, okay, because I was wondering why, you know, hmm. He was just a cool character. <laughs> yeah, he's just who, like, let's just throw who, him in. Who spoke in rhyme. It, though I think it's kind of ironic that you can kind of sum up the reason why the, the book was canceled on page nine when you go, was that, what was that, an implosion? An implosion? Yeah, an implosion. 
<laughs> yeah, they only say it three times. <laughs> yeah. And there's a loud pop. Yeah, that's well. That's I. I that's the Keith Giffen humor in the all. Yeah, but it, um, I was very. I love this idea that you have challenge of the unknown, which are you know you know five people outside of time. How can we make this team more bizarre? Okay, we're gonna make Swamp Thing a member, and then Dead Man. I mean, that's just that's just great. And Swamp Thing, he's the bruiser of the team. <laughs> Mm-hmm. At least in this issue, I don't know if this carried on to other issues. And this is great because you know I'm a, I'm mainly a DC guy, and I thought I had like you know like you, you know obscure bits of DC history like you know pretty much under control. I had no idea that Swamp Thing was a member of the Challengers of the Unknown. <laughs> you cannot reconcile this with Alan Moore's Swamp Thing. You really can't. I know. I I I I mean I haven't read that much Swamp Thing, but I was like Swamp Things in here. I mean, granted, I'm not. This is like, like I said, this is my first issue, full issue of reading Challengers of the Unknown. I think the only other time I've been exposed to them was, I think they did in the Amalgam stuff. They, there was a Challengers book there. Like Challengers of the Fantastic. The Fantastic. Yeah, yeah. yeah hmm. I, I've heard of the Challengers of the Unknown for years and years, but I can't say I ever sat down and read a book before. Um, I didn't think this book, as somebody who doesn't really have a working knowledge of the team. Uh, I didn't think this was easily accessible for me. Maybe no. it's just maybe it's because I'm simple-minded, or, or maybe it's because the book. Yeah, but we're also they were ending on... it off anyway, and they didn't care about new readers. Yeah, and also it's the yeah it's the last the, the last issue of the run, and it's like the third or fourth issue in a storyline. So you're you're kind of really really coming in at the end. And and, and, and like like sorry. you started to say, Mike, that they threw uh, Dead Man and. Uh, Swamp Thing on the team, and maybe that was in an effort to try and pick up some, uh, you know, some new readers. But I would have liked, ideally, I mean, we, you know, we pretty much picked this book, at, you know, by, at random. But I would have liked if I was going to have my first ever challenges book for it to be something that was focusing on the team proper as opposed to these uh, extra members as much as they do. So it, it, I don't really think that this gave me a feel for what the team books were like. Well, maybe at this point it really wasn't selling, so they were drawing in all the other uh, the guest stars to 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 you know to pump up the sales for the, of the book. Yeah, and you know the to be fair, the the main reason I was able to kind of follow it <laughs> as as well as I could is is having read Who's Who, I knew who the challenges of the unknown were. Uh, I have the Jeff Loeb Tim Sale series, but I I have yet to read it. Uh, I'm looking forward to that at some point because I, I like it when those two are together and that was their first uh, work together. Uh, but, you know, I came into this and I'm like, what the heck? It t- Rip Hunter is in this too? It's just like, wow. Yeah, see, they- now, yeah I, I was familiar with Rip Hunter and I'm like, wow, Ooh, Rip Hunter, interesting. Now, do we ever see Lucas Lawspeaker again? <laughs> well, he, cha- he, he, he changed Lucas to his last name. Uh Changed his first name to George, and then uh, made a little movie called THX 138, mm. and it's just, uh, th- things get hazy from there. Mm. So. Either that or he forms a prog rock band, and, uh, you know, tours, he's he's really big in Belgium, from Lucas what I Lucas and the Law Speakers? Yeah, Lucas and the Law Speakers. <laughs> They're kind of like King Crimson, but different, so. Well, he's got that, you know, he's got that kick-ass outfit. There's Hello, some... Cleveland! 
<laughs> We're in Cincinnati. Hello, Cincinnati. Uh, All right. How are you going to rate this thing, Bill? <laughs> Give it up already, huh? Uh, well, the cover, uh, cover I'm going to go with... Yeah, I'm going to give it probably a C plus, B minus on the cover. And story, uh, I mean, I was able to follow the story. I mean, you know, because you do get a recap and, you know, it, it makes sense. So and, and and I wasn't bored with it. So I'm, I'm actually going to give the story, I'm going to probably give it a C plus, B minus as well. And the, the art, the art was in some spots, it was really I really liked it, and it was detailed. And others, it looked kind of like the big splash page with uh, the Persuader and Swamp thing fighting each other. It just doesn't look as good as the rest of the book. I, I, I don't know. It just looks off to me. Now, I don't know. I have a theory about that, but you finish your okay. Um, I mean, the whole fight scene looks a little off compared to the rest of the of of the book there's just there's just less detail and I'm, i don't know if it was rushed or or what was going on so i'm, I'm gonna bring i'm gonna bring the the art down to probably like a c minus so i'm overall i think i'm gonna give the book a c a c plus you want to go mike or you want me to go uh i'll give the cover a b uh, i like Savik's work uh, and I think he's got a really good handle on both Swamp Thing and Dead Man. So I'm kind of down with that. Uh, I will give the story a B minus. Uh, you know, I, part of me wants to give it lower, but I haven't read the rest of it. So I'd like to judge it, you know, in toto. Uh, and I'll give the artwork a B minus too. Normally, I really like Keith Giffen from this time period. But some of the perspective is way off. Like the big splash page with Swamp Thing fighting Calab... I mean, whoever that guy is, because, it- <laughs> God, it looks like Calabac from this era, um, is, like, really wonky. And and Swamp Thing himself is mostly in shadow and looks really weird, uh, you know, most of the time. So, but, you know, then you've got that really awesome, you know, uh, cutaway of Challenger Mountain. So I'm going to give the whole thing a C plus, you know, overall. I, I think the story and the interior art let it down, but the cover art uh, was pretty phenomenal, in my opinion. All right. Well, I'm not. I don't like the angle that Saviak chose to do the uh, the cover at, and it's clear to me that he did so in an effort to emphasize Dead Man and Swamp Thing, while theoretically having the challenges front and center in the book, but, but not really having them as the stars on the cover. Uh, I think if he had lowered his perspective a little bit, kind of looking a little bit more with the challenges, a little bit more front and center directly, and the Dead Man and Swamp thing a little bit less focused on on the cover, it would have been a better picture. It may not have been better for sales, uh, and I'm thinking they have Dead Man and Swamp thing for sales purposes, but I don't really like the perspective he chose. Um, so I'm going to say a C- minus on the cover for me. I'm just, it's too busy and... and I, I, like I said, I'm just not happy with the angle. The story-wise, it is very difficult to judge because it's so much that we don't know about. You know, you know, I'm, I, we come right out and say I'm not really that familiar with the challenges at all. So 
it's hard for me to really rate them, rate the story. But as as a new reader coming in and just stepping into this book, I think it's pretty and in, inaccessible. So I'm going to say a C minus on that as well. Uh, the interior art is strange because the book is broken up into two chapters. And the first chapter looks to me to be typical Keith Giffen of this era, like similar to something you'd see in uh, Legion, uh, you know, and, and that that level of uh, work. And it's fine. The second chapter, it looks to me, and I think this fits Giffen's personality because I think Giffen was always trying to amuse himself a little bit. The second chapter looks like he decided, hey, I'm going to draw the second chapter and try and make it look like it's Joe Kubert. Because and he, oh, I, I can hmm. see that, hmm. and and that's something he does. You know, you see him nowadays. He he draws and he, he tries to draw like Herbie, and and you know he I think he tries to have fun while, while he's doing it. And I think that's what he did in this one, in particular that big splash page that you you mentioned. I think you know it's not as good as Kubert in my opinion, but it looks like he's doing it in a Kubert style. Yeah. Now that you say that, when I go back, I'm 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 going back and forth between. The first chapter does seem more detailed than the second chapter. So I'm I'm going to give him a little. I'm going to give him like a, a half a letter grade credit for being creative and and trying to be fun. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I would probably give I would probably give the interior artwork a C plus, but I'm going to give it a, a B minus because I, I I think that it's it's kind of fun to look at when you when you start looking at it closely. Uh, and and I also agree. I, I like the cutaway on the uh, mountain. So overall, I'm going to say solid C. Average book overall, but, you know, some merit. Anybody have anything else on this one before we move on to book three? No, I'm good. All right. I'm going to be giving you a fairly brief synopsis because there's not a lot to synopsize (laughs) in my book. Uh, That seems to be the bane of my existence when I've been picking books that are more recent lately. And in this instance, I picked Invincible number 12 from April of 2004. It has a price tag of $2.95. The cover by Ryan Otley shows a bloodied Invincible laying prone on the ground, and you're looking directly down on him from above. The interior story is written and lettered, strange combination, by Robert Kirkman, penciled and inked by Ryan Otley, and the colors are by Bill Crabtree. The story opens with Invincible in battle with Omni-Man, and you see uh, Omni-Man is his father and was placed on Earth by his otherworldly principles to establish himself and prepare for the eventual subjugation of humanity. In issue number 11, Omni-Man revealed this as his motivation, and the two started to battle. This issue is pretty much a knockdown, drag-out fight between the two, and by fight I mean that Invincible, Invincible, excuse me, Invincible, is pummeling Omni-Man's fists with his face and soiling his costume with his blood. All the while, Omni-Man is pontificating about how the people of Earth are insignificant and not worthy of their allegiance, including Invincible's mother. So the two of them continue battling with with uh, Omni-Man consistently having the upper hand, allowing Invincible to do his best Spider-Man imitation, continuing to persevere in his beliefs despite the continued beating that he's being given. After a brutal pummeling, Omni-Man points out that they will live to see the end of this civilization and asks, what will he have then? The badly beaten and bloodied young man says, you, Dad, I'd still have you. Omni-Man rears back, presumably for a killing blow, but then flies off into space with tears in his eyes. And that's the whole story. 
<laughs> now, I read this as part of, uh, I don't even remember what they called the collection. It was like an omnibus collection of uh, Invincible. They had two volumes of it. I took them out of the library and I read this. And I read this probably about five years ago. So I don't really remember where it builds up from and then exactly where it goes. I think eventually it turns out that Omni-Man is just trying to pacify his uh, otherworldly uh, principles, but he doesn't really believe what he's doing here and eventually turns against them uh, and, and is back on Invincible's side. But at least at this point, they're just a brutal battle between the two of them with a significant amount of Invincible's blood throughout uh, and and he really never, at, even for a moment, gets an upper hand in the fight. He's just getting his ass handed to him through the whole book. That said, uh, reading it in the the uh, collected edition that I did, I loved this story. I thought this was great. It was like a total turn because, you know, you started out, he was the hero of Earth, Omni-Man, and now all of a sudden he's ready to destroy the Earth. And I just thought this was great. I think the artwork really just brings out the brutality of what's going on here, uh, even though it's a more cartoonish and simple style than what I generally like. But I think it it really serves its purpose here. Had you guys read this before? No. No, I've only just recently started to learn about this character, and, and I haven't, and even though this was kind of spoiled, I didn't know that this is where this goes. <laughs> but that's okay. That's okay. Um, I like this. It's this is pretty cool. I, I might have to. Uh, how, how many issues is the series up to, though? Isn't well, it's it like probably, it's, it's, about 130 or something? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah it's, definitely... it's, it's moved along. Uh, I When I was reading this, I actually thought this was a superior series to The Walking Dead. I think this was Kirkman's better series. And a lot. And, of, I, and I'm kind of surprised, given the juice he has off of Walking Dead, that no one has made an Invincible television series or movie yet. Mm, give it time. You never know. Uh, I was familiar with this uh, back around 2005-ish. Uh, I was writing reviews for this uh, this site called Silver Bullet Comics uh, and uh, burned myself out. I wrote like 150 reviews in six months. Uh, it was uh, it was brutal, but they actually sent me comics, you know, like that they would get to review. So I got one of the collections of Invincible to review. All of the trade paperbacks, by the way, are named after sitcoms, uh, <laughs> so uh, which endears them to me. But the very first one I read was and led off with an issue that told you everything that happened to the series up until that point, because it was uh, the character of Invincible, like telling his girlfriend his history. So it was like perfect because I got everything I needed to know about the character, and I loved the concept. I loved the concept that your dad's Superman, you are following in his footsteps, and oh, by the way, he's a complete prick and out to destroy, you know, to subjugate the world. And so it, it, I never really went back and followed it up. This is one of those books I figured one day I'll just start buying the collections of and, and, and read because, you know, like in this issue, you can get through it pretty quick. Uh, yes. It doesn't take all that long to read. Um but it's it's just the brutality of it. I mean, this is more brutal to me than than your average issue of you know the more violent issues of The Walking Dead. Because yeah, those are kind of graphic and they're you know they're you know they're they're bloody. But this on an emotional level is just 
it's just heart wrenching because it's you know he's fighting his dad. I mean, and and his dad's just not really giving up. I mean, you know, it's like what if Superman had a porn stash and was a <laughs> jerk? So uh, I just you know, and and the and the city is just getting wrecked. That two page spread of them blitzing through the buildings. Uh, you know, at the beginning of the issue is just like, and people running just like, holy crap. I mean, it was just, it was a really engaging read. It really was. Uh, I, I, I really felt for him. I felt for the kid because he's, he's trying to get through to somebody. He's trying to make sense of the man that he thought his father was turning out to not be that man. And, you know, he goes, I'm tired of this game. If you choose to stand against me, you can die with them. I can always produce more offspring. And Invincible just gives him a haymaker that, you know, he put everything behind and he just gets bitch slapped (laughs) with Omni-Man going, please. I mean, and then just just punching him and then punching him again and again. And it's just brutal. God, it's hard to watch. And then taking him under into the ocean and beating him down there and then basically leaving him for dead and i mean there's there's never been a point in my life where i've ever had the desire to fight with my dad i really can honestly say i never have but if i ever did as a kid growing up this is what i pictured the fight would have been like (laughs) (laughs) really smash it through buildings but just just the just the thought that like you know you never ever would have the upper hand you know that that and, and I think, you know, part of that is, you know, your dad is, and, uh, you know, you grow up in your own way. Your dad is a superhero and, and you know, you, you, could, you couldn't hope to challenge him in a fight. Sure you can. You just got to wait till he's old. Oh, sorry. <laughs> You're not Have I said too much? <laughs> no, my dad's 83. I could probably take him. I could take you. I've been waiting forever for this. Yeah, that's when he whaps you upside the head with, like, his cane. <laughs> or he pulls out a gun. Bam! <laughs> Dumbass. But it's it's just it it is there is a uh, a brutality to to this issue that I've rarely seen, and I think they 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 set it forth very very distinctly without it ever seeming like it's just a stunt. Uh, I don't know. It, it it seems like it serves a purpose, and and it and it is heart wrenching and upsetting, and uh, it it's just. It, it, like I said, I, I stopped reading after I think those first two editions, uh, which probably had 20 issues each. So I read about the first 40. And, and it wasn't that I thought at that point it wasn't good. I still really was enjoying it. I just fell behind and, and haven't picked it up again since. And I would like to, uh, to pick up from there and keep going. And I'm sure people could give us more description as to what eventually happens with Omni-Man. But it's probably best that they don't because I would like to read the rest of this at some point. Yeah, I'm... I'm sure I can grab this from the library because they they've uh, I was surprised that my local library had a large assortment of uh, graphic novels and and collections. So I have to look this up because I'm cheap. <laughs> Actually, I'm just not made of money. <laughs> just just a guy in the Geico commercial. God, man, if I was made of money, I'd be rich. <laughs> so much yes. of me. Yes, you would. So a pot uh, of gold at the end of the rainbow. No. I think this cover is exceptionally compelling it tells you exactly what you're going to look at it's not like you pick this up and think oh there's going to be a family-friendly story let me buy it for my kid uh you know he's he, i mean it's a bloodied unconscious invincible laying on the the ground so you you know what you're in for if you buy it uh i i would give the cover an a minus i think it's really solid 
Again, the interior art is not my preferred style, but I think it's exceptionally effective. I think it, it, it moves along extremely briskly, uh, which it should, but it also conveys the brutality of everything that's going on in here and the heartbreak of it. So I'm also going to give the interior art an A plus, A minus, excuse me. And the story, my only criticism of the story is it's a little light on story, but certainly it hits all the beats that you'd want it to hit. Uh, and if you read this again, you know, you're best off reading it in trade, especially now that it's been over 10 years since this issue came out. You could, there's no reason not to read it in, in mass. Uh, so I would say solid B plus on that for an overall A minus. Hmm. I'll give it an A plus straight across the board. Uh, I liked the art. I think it fit the story well. I liked the writing. I liked the cover. I mean, it was just such a brutal story, but still managed to convey something beyond just showing senseless violence. I was very impressed with it. I want that porn stash. I had that for a long time. <laughs> you still have that. We, we... Well, but it, but I also have the beard to go with it now. Mm -hmm. This is true. Um, I hate to sound like I'm just a minor bird, but I'm going to give this A's across the board as well. This is this this is this is pretty intriguing, and I hate to say it's intrigued me more than Challengers of the Unknown. I don't know if it's because uh, it, it, I'll be able to read it faster <laughs> from what you're saying, um, but yeah, th those books with like 20 issues each, you you read them in one sitting. Wow, you know, one night you finish the whole book. So yeah, I'm going to give this A's across the board, given overall A. So. Looks like we're we just so agreeable tonight. Damn you. <laughs> well, you know. Ah, never mind. I was gonna try to work in our, our a joke we work in all the time. Why would you do that? Well, because we got nowhere else to go. I got nowhere else to go. I got nowhere else to go. I've got else. Our first email is from our friend Russell Bragg, and it is titled Back to the Bins 179 How the Bins Stole Christmas. Hi, guys. Another stellar episode. You guys had me going with the opening. I was wondering where you were going, to with, going with it until I heard Back to the Bins in place of Rudolph. Very creative. I love Rudolph the Red Nosed Reindeer, I love all the Christmas cartoons. Anyway, once again, I only had the book Paul talked about. I see a pattern forming. I have it both in the Christmas with the Superheroes number one and limited collector's edition C43. Sorry, I only have my copy of the Treasury. I guess he's not sending me a freebie on that. <laughs> I believe it was with Michael Bailey that Scott was remembering talking about this issue. I think Mike had a problem with Batman singing Christmas carols. Boy, it's good you stayed on the call, Mike. <laughs> if I'm remembering correctly... Uh, I enjoyed all the comics discussed very much. I had no idea about Mickey's nephew's names either. You pretty o you pretty much only hear about Yui, Dewey, and Louie. As for comic stories, I would like to hear that is tough. I might have given a few in the past, but I can't remember. How about Flash 275? Or do the whole Death of Iris Allen story arc? Any what-if issue? And Savage She-Hulk number one to start my wish list. Great show as always. It was different for me this time as I was home on vacation. I was cleaning up it, up the kitchen and getting the dough ready to make Christmas cookies while listening this week. But no matter whether I'm at work or home, you can count on me to listen. Russell Bragg, 
host of the DC Comics Presents show. Thank you, Russell. Mike, do you have any comment on uh, <laughs> that Batman story? <laughs> no, no, he's 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 absolutely right. Uh, when when Scott and I talked about this uh, story, like God, back in like 2009, 2010, somewhere around there, uh, we I did express my misgivings over Batman just you know hanging out and singing. Um, still kind of feel that way, but. Uh, as with a lot of things in life, as I get older, opinions change, and uh, I found the story to have more heart to it and to be more about something else than Batman singing. And and let me add that when you talk about Batman singing and complain about it, people will send you YouTube clips of either the Batman Beyond episode where they had the Superstitious Cowardly Lot musical number or Batman singing Am I Blue from Justice League. Right, that's that's the one I brought up. I think at the time, the "Am I Blue" uh, moment. So, but yes, I remember that very well, and I was thinking about that when I was listening to the episode. <laughs> I think we're going to have um, to uh, try and hit some of the issues that Russell suggested o- over time. Am I blue? Am I blue? That's it. I'm sorry. That's all you're getting. I just <laughs> and and in my mind, I hear the song, but he's still dancing the Batusi. one of these things is not like the other (laughs) you want to take the next one bill sure and it comes from chris franklin and it is addressed to paul bill and scott first off merry christmas and happy new year to you and yours i enjoyed your christmas selections this year not a stinker in the bunch of course the silent night of batman is a bonafide classic beyond reproach I do have to say, I never really thought of the wife as planning on committing suicide. I do believe she received a letter declaring her husband dead, or at the very least, missing in action. I'm not really sure what seeing the bat silhouette did for her, other than to make her pause and have hope. I guess it worked, since her husband leaped from that personnel truck shortly thereafter. Uh, The Disney comics sounded like a lot of fun. I could imagine my seven-year-old daughter would devour this thing. When Scott brought up the Seven Dwarfs Mind Trained, I was just as flummoxed as him. I've heard Disney never lets a good idea go to waste. Who knows? Maybe someone in Disney Imagineering had this comic and said, hey! Or it could have been stuffed in a drawer somewhere and unearthed recently. Either way, having written it just a few months ago, I agree with Scott. It's a great ride. Thanks for all the hours of entertainment this year. Looking forward to much more in 2015. And that comes from our friend Chris Franklin with the Supermates podcast. Thank you, Chris. Our next email is from Dewey the Mailman. Dewey. It's titled Christmas Episode. I just listened to the Christmas episode, and it was a great end-of-the-year show. When you were trying to remember what Scott talked about last year, my first thought was, was Scott even on that show? But alas, Paul reminded us of his book, and yes, he was there that one time. Now, as for thoughts on the books that should be done, that should be done. I would like to see you do another Wolverine type show, where all three or four, if need be, do an entire story arc. Now, not just Wolverine, but how you did that episode covering all the books. Just a thought. When covering the last book in the show about the Disney Christmas book, I believe that you said it was from 1957, and Scott said he had a hard time trying to relate to kids around eight years old back then. I agree with him that it would have been hard for him since Scott would have been in his mid-twenties back then. So, wow. 
it, it would be hard for him to get into thinking, into into their thinking back then. Oh, and by the way, I'm from the Upper Northwest, and what's an Epcot? Yay! I wonder if Scott is having a heart attack yet. I would love to go to Disney World, but it's on, but it's in Florida, and no Disney or something like that will ever lure me to that state. I'd rather go to the Antarctic than Florida. Thanks again for a great show. Sincerely, Dewey the Mailman. P.S. You know I'm just trying to get under Scott to get under Scott's underwearing on the outside of his pants, Gardner. Okay. Well, thank you, Dewey. I'm glad Dewey writes into you guys too. That's great. <laughs> he's he's always always getting on Scott. That's that's apparently his. Uh, that's that's what gives him joy. <laughs> uh, thank you, Dewey. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> For the Epcot dig. Anyway, uh, next up from some may say that he might be on some upcoming Back to the Bins episodes, but you'll have to find out in the future. But we know that this is an email from Luke Giaconetti. Pliers of the time stream. Happy 2015, fellas. I finished listening to your 1984 review last night and wanted to drop you a quick email about it. And yes, I promise to be quick this time. Being born in 1980 in a small... No, I'm just kidding. Being born in 1980, I was not aware of the comics being published in 1984 until much later. So I really enjoyed hearing you guys, who were there on the ground, so to speak, discuss not only the comics themselves, but also the trends and your memories of the co- of the time. Comics, despite being a transient medium, medium by design, being printed on cheap paper and sold at a low cost, etc., are extremely powerful tools for recollection because they exist as a snapshot of a moment of time. This applies not just to when they were published, but also to when we bought them. So hearing you guys bring these memories to the forefront was really fun for me. I do want to expand on a point which Scott and Paul brought up regarding cover date September 1984. The two standout new releases that month were West Coast Avengers number 1 and Transformers number 1. Both of these are major books in my opinion. West Coast Avengers made proof of the concept that the Avengers could be franchised, a concept without without which Marvel couldn't have a dozen Avengers titles on the shelves nowadays. Yeah, well, sometimes I think a little too many, but anyway, uh, that's my opinion, not Luke's. Transformers number one, back to Luke's email, is also hugely important, perhaps not to the comics world, but for the trans, but for the TF brand. Paul made. Apparently the dogs do not like the Transformers <laughs> or Paul's name. Paul made the comment that TF number one was important for people who aren't me. Understanding <laughs> that Paul is not the target audience for the book. Yeah, I think Paul was probably in his, uh, you know, uh, you were in your 30s then, right? <clears throat> uh, I would have been, uh, I believe I would have been 21 years old at the time. Oh, oh really? Oh. That that book was uh, released. So, so you're out getting smashed every night. And you're, I'm not reading no Transformers. Uh, quite possibly. <laughs> <laughs> I don't take this as a slight, nor have any issue with that statement. But in the interest of expanding knowledge, I want to just pass along some information which non-Transformers fans might not know about the Marvel Transformers book. The basic storyline, factions, and original characters of Transformers were all created, for the most part, by Bob Budansky with most of the art design done by artist Flo Derry for the comic. Floro, sorry, Floro Derry for the comic. So the very basic concepts of the Transformers brand, the war between Autobots and Decepticons, the planet Cybertron, etc., which still drive the brand to this day, were were introduced 
in Marvel's Transformers number one. Similarly, similarly, characters created by Budansky have remained essentially this back the backbone of the brand since 1984, with their personalities and character traits still mostly intact. This includes characters which have been translated to many other versions and universes, including Optimus Prime, Megatron, Starscream, Bumblebee, Ratchet, Ironhide, Soundwave, etc. This is especially noteworthy considering that there have been hundreds of characters featured in the title and other media. The book ran for 80 issues, the finale featuring the copy 80, issue 80 of a four-issue limited series on the cover. I think I remember that. Along with three miniseries, G.I. Joe vs. Transformers, Transformers Headmasters, and Transformer the Movie, and in a hot move style series. The book had a sequel in the 90s, Transformers Generation 2, and recently was restarted with issue 80.5 over at IDW. TF Jet Regeneration 1, with fan favorite writer Simon Furman definitively ending the Marvel's Transformers continuity at issue 100. Again, I just wanted to pass along some information about the book, which is another of Marvel's extremely successful tie-in titles of the 70s and 80s, right alongside Star Wars and G.I. Joe. Thanks again, and here's to a successful 2015. Luke. It's funny, because like, after you said Paul had a point, all I heard was blah, 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 blah. <laughs> Not to belittle Luke's thoughts, but I understand that Transformers is important to people who were, I guess, probably in their 30s now. And that that would be a lesson. We're about to turn forty. I'm sorry, close to forty. But hey, those I like those books that you gave me, Mike. Thank you. Quite frankly, when those books came out, when those books came out, I was kind of beyond its target audience, and I never did pick it up. That said, I enjoyed the first movie when it came out, so I I don't know. It's 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 all right. The thing, (laughs) it's no Jaws, right? It's it's one of those things where. I can I completely understand where people you know ten you know eight nine ten plus years older than me you know don't don't get the gestalt of Transformers. I understand that because again it wasn't targeted for you. I was eight years old in 1984, so that it was like you know somebody put a target on my back and and aimed it you know and, and aimed Transformers right at it. Uh, because I was, uh, I read the, a little bit of the comics, but I was huge into the animated series. So, you know, the, the way I described it once when talking to Chris and Scott is that, you know, when you guys were eight years old, you were playing Star Wars on the on the playground. By 1984, even though it wasn't like completely gone, Star Wars wasn't a thing on the playground anymore. Transformers was, GI Joe was, He Man was. So that was very much the Star Wars of my generation. So, uh, you know, I, everything Luke was saying, I was just kind of nodding my head with going, yep, uh-huh, yep, he's, yeah, that's right, that's right too. So Yeah, and I totally understand that. I get that. It's uh, just for whatever reason, you know, I was also slightly older than the target audience for Star Wars when it came out. I was in high school when it came out. Um, but... That always caught on with me. I never had any problem getting into Star Wars and enjoying well, Star Wars, despite the fact that I never really did get involved with the expanded universe. Uh, Transformers is just something that, you know, it just wasn't my thing. I totally understand people loving it, and I totally understand that yeah. being a huge part of people's childhoods. It's just never been my thing. But um, unfortunately, though, we live in a time period where, you know, if you don't like something, you have to hate it. No, not at and, all. And, you know, 
And uh, no, I'm not saying you do. I'm just saying that that seems to be kind of the group think on the internet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, things you know, have to either be the best ever or the worst ever. And Clerks too took a swipe at Transformers and all that. Uh, you know, saying you know who gives a shit about that. And and the point is, people who are older that think that, and I'm not saying that you do. I'm just you know making the example, aren't you know really putting themselves in the position of the kids that were really into that when when it came out conversely people of my generation who are like it's the best ever and we can't ever let it go i think are kind of doing it wrong too because you know we really haven't let anything of the 80s go everything's getting i'm i'm really waiting for like a masters of the universe film to hit like any minute now like they're going to announce it and it's going to be huge and and if Dolph Lundgren doesn't get a cameo I'm going to riot but that's just the <laughs> what, what, that's that was going to be what I was going to ask you is what did you think of the original Masters of the Universe movie You know what when I was a kid I loved it uh it was very different from the cartoon but I kind of you know I kind of du- you know I, I I thought it was kind of a visually interesting I watched it as, as an adult and John Byrne has put it out there that that was a failed new god script and when you watch it as a New Gods movie, it makes perfect sense. That's because He Man is Orion, you know, and Skeletor is Darkseid. And when you when you think of it in those terms, it just it just everything kind of falls into Beast Man is is Calabac. And yeah, because don't they have like a don't don't they? Well, yeah, they they kind of come to Earth in like a boom and, tube. Yeah. So and and I got to uh, to uh, see a panel at, at DragonCon a couple of years ago where the guy that did all the art direction for that film talked about it and they you know it was a Golden Globus film so they had grand plans for it that never uh, that never really reached fruition but he spoke very highly of the original script and what they were trying to do with it and the fact that Sylvester Stallone came on set one day looked at Dolph Lundgren looked at the director and said you gave that guy lines. So, see if I can do uh, move it to the next email, which is from our friend Tim Elliott, and it is titled "Subject: Back to the Bins." Uh, actually, I am going to uh, take this as my moment to skedaddle because Chris is ready. So, All right, go on, get out of here, then. Go on, you got nowhere else to go. Actually, I, I do. But uh, <laughs> thanks for coming on, Mike. I appreciate. Thanks, it. guys. Thanks it's, for it's been me fun having the you emails on and stuff. I, I, I love talking to both of you, and I will try to make an effort to make myself more available. Uh, you know, I got to be more slutty, I guess, when it comes to podcasting. So just with us, I don't care if you don't <laughs> for other people. <laughs> you guys have a good night. You good too, night, Mike. Bye bye. <laughs> Meanwhile, in the halls of justice. Uh, next email is from Tim Elliott, titled Back to the Bins number 180, or The Times They Are a-Changin'. Greetings, Paul, Bill, and Scott. Great trip through the memory banks of 1984. 1984 was a banner year for me. I graduated high school, got my second job, and was about a year into my comics collecting. I was a late bloomer to the comics industry, but I jumped in with both feet. I had great, I had a great time listening to the three of you reminisce, and I agree with Paul... This should be a semi-regular show. Great show, guys. Tim Elliott, Texas. Thank you, yeah. Tim. I appreciate that. That was a fun show. I gotta be at Lakeland tomorrow, which means nothing to you. <laughs> no, it really doesn't. But, uh, yeah. Uh, so where did we officially end the show? Were you just gonna... Say something funny so I can end it. Something funny. All right, done. <laughs> I'll, I'll just put one of your LMD comments there. <laughs> Well, yeah, there, I just gave you one. What a moron.
Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at backtothebins at gmail.com or by visiting the Two True Freaks section of www.forumforgeeks.com. Back to the Bins is produced in association with the Two True Freaks podcast, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com and is a registered trademark of Demanzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Back to the Bins is a proud member of both the League of Comic Book Podcasts, which you may find at comicbooknoise.com league, and also the Comics Podcast Network, which you may find at comicspodcasts.com. Take a moment to stop by their respective sites and support their other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week. I just... <laughs> right, Scott just said, I need you and Bill to send me a list of all your favorite books. I want to start up a show covering them without you. <laughs> <laughs> F Troop. <laughs> make him. T- hey, yeah, what we do is we give him all the books we hate so and make him do F that. Troop, comma, Apollo, Apollo Smile, March Hare. March here and con.